0: All right, so as you've heard me say before, around AD 61, uh, Paul found himself under house arrest in Rome. And so after three successful missionary journeys, after being in prison for two years in Caesarea, um, there on the beautiful Mediterranean coast, Um, of Israel after that dangerous voyage across the Mediterranean Sea, now he's there in Rome and he is chained to a Roman soldier. He is under house arrest. Previously, he had been falsely accused by his enemies in Jerusalem, and now in Rome, he's ready to defend himself uh, in trial before the notorious Caesar Nero. And so while he's waiting for his trial to begin over in Italy, Paul hears about a problem over in Greece, specifically in the northern region of ancient Greece, a place called Macedonia, where there's a church called the Church of Philippi. Now, Paul was concerned about all the churches in the Roman Empire, but you have to admit he had a special place in his heart for the Philippian church, And the reason this is so is because about 10 years prior to him writing the letter that we've been studying, Paul personally planted the church in Philippi. He knew a lot of the people. He had personal relationships with them. And here's about a problem. And the problem basically consisted of the fact that a divisive spirit had been allowed to creep into the church A divisive spirit that that was fueled in part by a dispute between two prominent women in the church. The reason we know this is because later in his letter, the Apostle Paul specifically named the two women who were involved in this church fight. (laughs) In fact, we're going to show you right now so you see what I'm talking about. Go ahead and turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter four, he's winding down his letter. Okay, we're in chapter two. We'll probably get to chapter four in about six months, but anyway, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You see how, what a special place this church had in Paul's heart. And then he says in verse two, where he kind of drops the bomb. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What's the inference there? That they had a disagreement, that they had been fighting, feuding, dividing in the church and Paul so wanted there to be unity in the church, he actually was willing to call out these two women by name. Now, I suspect they weren't the only ones who were fighting in the church. Why? Because whenever you have a church that's filled with human beings, even redeemed human beings, there's gonna be some level of drama in the church. There are no perfect churches. Paul hears about the drama in the church of Philippi, and so he decides, I'm gonna address this issue head on. Now, listen to me right here. I'm gonna address this issue Head on by challenging the Philippians to develop a certain mindset. That leads you to the big idea for the message today. As followers of Christ, is there any followers of Christ in this room this afternoon, right? All right, so as followers of Christ, we must have the mind of Christ which is characterized by pride and disunity. Is that what it says there? Right? Which is characterized by, you guys shout out the next two words there. You see that? So important. As followers of Christ, we have to have the mind of Christ, which is characterized by unity and servanthood. It is a Mindset. All right, so right now, if you're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, can you say amen? All right, so here we go. If you're visiting Calvary, this is what we do most of the time just go verse by verse through God's word because you can't improve. You cannot, you cannot, cannot improve on God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, right? Make me happy, (laughs) by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so what we see here is that Paul is basically saying to the people who are dividing in the church, He's saying something like this. Hey, does Christ encourage you when you're down and discouraged? Does Christ lovingly comfort you when you're hurting? Has Christ given you the gift of the Holy, Spirit? are you a partaker of the Holy Spirit? I mean, does the Holy Spirit live inside of you? Has Christ given you um, affection, and sympathy and mercy, and the Philippians would have answered, well, yes, of course. We're God's kids, that's what God does for his children. And Paul, knowing that they would respond that way, basically said this, all right, so do me a favor. In fact, if you do this, it'll make me very happy. Stop contending and start caring for one another. Stop arguing and start agreeing, stop being divided and start being united. All right, so why was this so important 2,000 years ago? And why is it still important today? Well, we saw it already, because as followers of Christ, we must have the mind of Christ, which is characterized by unity and by servanthood. It is a mindset. Now, the million dollar question is how? How in the world can Christians actually become unified servants? It's one thing, right, for Paul to tell us what to do. It's a whole other thing for Paul to tell us how to do it. And the good news is he does just that. He tells us how to do it starting in verse three. All right, so let's look at verse three together. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, right? Selfish ambition, conceit. That's poison, don't let it in the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, because that's good medicine, count others more significant than yourselves. All right, so how can we become unified servants? If you wanna take notes today, number one, we gotta repent of our selfish ambition and our conceit. Repent, change our mind, turn away from selfish ambition and conceit, why? Because it's poison and it kills relationships. Now can you imagine when the Philippians received this letter? from the Apostle Paul? I mean, this was a big day 2,000 years ago in in the life of the church of Philippi. The Apostle Paul wrote, we got his letter, let's call a meeting, let's read the letter out loud. And that's what they did in in the first century, uh, whether it was Paul, or Peter, or John, or whoever's writing the letter, as the Apostles wrote the letters to the local churches in the Roman Empire, the elder, the pastor, the leader, whatever, would stand up before the congregation and they would read the letter out loud. And I'm sure they would make some comments on it as well. And so can you imagine 2,000 years ago, the church of Philippi gets together, they're all ready, they're, what's Paul gonna say? And whoever the leader is begins to read the letter, and they get to the part of the letter which we just read. Let nothing be done from selfish ambition or conceit, and they continue to read the letter, and then publicly they read out before everybody in the church, I entreat, Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, right? And so there's Euodia sitting over there and there's Syntyche who used to sit with Euodia but she's now sitting over here and what are they doing when the elder reads the letter of Paul? They're they're sliding down in their seat. You see, because Paul felt so strongly and Paul so wanted there to be unity in the church that he was absolutely willing to call them out. All right, so the terms selfish ambition and conceit can be defined in this way. Selfish ambition, to push one's self forward. Being divisive and being argumentative. And then conceit is being boastful. It's a desire for esteem. It's empty pride. Now, ladies and gentlemen, those two things can destroy families, those two things can destroy friendships, and those two things can even destroy fellowships or churches. So I want you to imagine a conceited person who thinks it's all about them, right, who, is all about their agenda and what they want, and they're pushing themselves forward, they're pushing their agenda forward, they're divisive, they're argumentative regarding whatever um, situation they dig in, um, they dig in their feet, right? They're not willing uh, to change. No matter how many people get hurt, no matter how much damage is done, they refuse to swallow their pride. Okay, so what is the result? The result is that Families split up, friendships split up, and even sometimes churches, fellowships split up. Why? Because selfish ambition and conceit destroy relationships. And Paul's saying, hey, Church of Philippi, it doesn't have to be this way. If you want to be unified, stop pushing yourself forward, stop being divisive, stop being argumentative, stop making it all about you. It's not about you, it's about Christ. Now if you think the first part of verse three was hard to swallow, look at the second half of verse three. This is amazing to me that this is in the Bible. He says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. All right, so how can we be unified servants? Number two, if you're taking notes, we saw number one, we have to repent. We'll go to the next screen. We have to repent of our selfish ambition and conceit. But look at this, number two, straight from the Bible, we have to consider others more important than ourselves. That's a hard one. Why? Because we're all born with this sin nature (laughs) thank you adam and the sin nature is self-centered and selfish and so it's really hard and by the way god really is serious about this many years before solomon backslid and did all those crazy things um, he was a godly man walked with the lord and he had a son and he wrote his son some advice he spoke his advice to his son, but then he wrote it down in what's called the Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter six, starting in verse 16, he said to his son, there are six things that the Lord hates. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. God hates certain things. There's six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. And then what is number one on the list of the things the Lord hates? Verse 17 of chapter 6 of Proverbs, haughty eyes. Haughty eyes, right? Looking down like you're all that. Uh, some of your versions say a prideful look. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Isn't it interesting that on the list of things that God hates, murder is number three, but number one is a haughty, prideful look. Isn't that crazy? And he goes on to name some other things which I won't get into right now. But when prideful people, ladies and gentlemen, listen to this, this is serious. When prideful people look down their noses at other people thinking that they're better than those people, God up in heaven is like, hey, Gabriel, hey, Michael, you see that guy right there? You see that lady right there? I hate what they're doing right now. Now, do you wanna drill down even more into this sin? This is where you say, yes, pastor, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. I mean, we we might as well. We're already kind of uncomfortable. And by the way, I get uncomfortable during the week when I'm studying this stuff and actually pulling out of the Bible what God wants to say. This stuff's convicting. And so this kind of pride that we're talking about, this is the basis of racism. This is the basis of bigotry. This is the basis of misogyny. And this is the basis of what's called misandry. Alright, so racism is contempt for a particular ethnicity. Thinking we're up here because we're of this ethnic group and they're down there because of their ethnic group. It's racism. And then um, bigotry. It's contempt for the members of a certain group. Listen, as Christians, we shouldn't have contempt or hate anybody. But that's what bigots do. And then, Misogyny, that's contempt for women, looking down at women. And then misandry, of course, contempt for men. It's a hatred for men. All of that stuff is sinful attitudes. They're sinful attitudes that devastate many relationships. And I'll add another one so we can all be even more uncomfortable, right? Extreme nationalism. I say extreme nationalism, because there's nothing wrong with nationalism, there's nothing wrong with loving your country, there's nothing wrong with counting your blessings, the blessings that we have um, as Americans, but that takes an ugly turn when we have the attitude that as Americans, we're better than everybody else in the world. And when we travel around the world, we look down our noses at other cultures and we criticize them for not being like us. Listen, we may have had a healthy patriotism in the past, but that has turned into sinful pride in the present. Why, because we're looking down our noses in a condescending way at people with other cultures. Instead of criticizing, why don't we care for them and wanna help them? and wanna love them. So why do people look down their noses at other people? And by the way, um, you really gotta be an, have an honest heart for this kind of stuff, because here, here's the thing about pride, we never see it in ourselves. So why? Why do people look down their noses at others? The reason why is because if I'm looking down at you, you're down here, and I'm up here, and psychologically, that makes me feel real good about myself. And that's what the sin nature wants to do. The sin nature wants us to coddle it, and pet it, and talk about how great we are. And God says, you know what, I really hate that. And so let's apply it even more. If an American goes to a third world nation with a critical attitude, thinking what's wrong with these people? Why can't they get their act together? Right? What is that person doing? They're putting themselves up here and they're putting the people of that nation, whatever that nation is, down here. And what are they doing? They're feeling good about themselves. Now listen, don't ever go to the mission field with that attitude. Like, what's wrong with these people? Why can't they get their act together? Because the Holy Spirit, like Elvis, will leave the building and you'll have no fruit on the mission field. If you wanna have fruit on the mission field, here's what you gotta do. You have to go to that nation um, in humility, as a servant, wanting to be a blessing. Why? Because Paul just said it at the end of verse three. He said, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We can just read it and keep reading on and forget about it, or we can stop and, and actually actually think about how can I apply this to my life? And Lord, if any of this junk is in my heart, help me to repent, because I wanna be used by you. And so if I do go on a mission trip, I'm not gonna be thinking I'm up here and they're down there. I'm gonna be thinking what a privilege it is that I'm in this nation and these people are precious and they're made in the image of God and I'm gonna look up to them and I'm gonna be a servant to them and I'm gonna try to bless them and the Holy Spirit's all over that and now there's fruit in the ministry. That's the attitude. Listen. Don't allow our, and we're thankful to be Americans. We're thankful for the blessings we have in America. But guess what? What we enjoy in America is a gift of God's grace. And so we can't put the fact that we're Americans up here and the fact that we're Christians down here just never works. And so as we continue to think about this, this is the attitude we have on the mission field. This is the attitude we should have in our family. This is the attitude we should have in our friendships. This is the attitude we should have in the church fellowship. I love what David Guzik said. David Guzik said, if I consider you above me and you consider me above you, then a marvelous thing happens. We have a community where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down on. Don't you wish you could go to a church like that? It's a mindset. It's a choice that we need to take um, into our hearts. So it gets even harder in verse four. Okay, we can't skip these verses. We got to look at them. All right, so verse four let each of you look out, or look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How can we be unified servants? Number three, we need to look out for the needs of others. So instead of thinking, how am I feeling today? How's my day going? Or what do I need? We actually take on this mindset as we're with people. How are they doing? How are they feeling? How's their day going? What do they need? Now, of course, the ultimate example of this is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ absolutely was all about looking out for the needs of other people. And the best example of this, or one of the best examples of this, is in John 13. I'll just tell you the story. So in, in, in Bible times, right? you guys know this, they didn't have the luxury of indoor plumbing and people walked around with sandals. What does that mean? That means the dust of the dirt roads caused your feet to be soiled, and so because of that, at the front door of every home, there was a basin of water and a towel. Why? So that if a guest came to the house, you could wash their feet and dry them with a towel so they wouldn't track in dirt to your house. Now in the first century, this was the job of the servant because the family members thought it was below their dignity to wash people's feet. Now you guys know where I'm going with this, right? And so at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus wants to celebrate the Passover in the upper room and so they all go in. The disciples walk into the upper room and lo and behold, There's a basin of water and there's a towel, but there's no servant. And so what are these guys thinking as they go to the famous Last Supper? They're thinking, who's gonna wash our feet? Where's the servant? What's going on here? And maybe one of them had a moment of sanity and they all actually thought in their head, maybe I need to call everybody over and wash their feet. But that would be quickly dismissed, right? Because we all have this sin nature, and the thought is, if I do that, I'm gonna get stuck with that job forever, and I'm not doing that. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the disciples went to the famous Last Supper, and they all had dirty feet. Not the Last Supper like Leonardo da Vinci, right? The painting with the tall Western table, that's not it at all. This was a low triclinium, and so they're all laying on their side around the triclinium, which makes the fact that you gotta have good smelling feet even more important, right? Because you're all, the feet's like right, the foot's right in your face. And so this is what's going on in John chapter 13. And to top it off, around this time, they all start arguing, the disciples, about who's the greatest. Now, I personally feel it has to do with seating arrangements, because in that culture, if you have a certain seat, then you're better, right, or considered better, uh, or better positioned than other people, and so they start arguing. I'm the greatest, I should sit there. No, I'm the greatest, no. Jesus spends more time with me. Well, he he, uh, relies on me more than you, and they're arguing. And so right in the middle of this nonsense, and by the way, what are they doing? What they're doing is that they're giving into selfish ambition, conceit, they're each considering themselves better than the other, and they're looking out for their own interests, exactly the opposite of what Paul is writing to us today. And so Jesus, because he's a leader, and leaders just don't sit around, leaders get up and do something when something needs to be done, Jesus gets up in the middle of their petty argument Right, and he goes over to the door, and he grabs the pitcher of water. He pours it into the bowl. He takes the bowl, and he takes the towel, and he wraps it around his waist and ties it, and he brings the water, and to the disciples' shock, he actually washes their feet one by one by one by one. Now think about this. Let this dawn on you for a second. This is the king of the universe. This is the eternal God, and what is he doing? He's voluntarily doing the job of a servant. It's absolutely mind-boggling when you think about what an amazing example Jesus gave to us, which leads us to this famous phrase. True greatness is not found in a title, it's found in a towel. Now we can say that all all we want, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, do we live that? It's not about what we say, it's about how we live. And the disciples, right, what are they doing? I'm the greatest, no, I am, no, I am. And what does Jesus do? He's like, you know what? They can talk all they want. I'm gonna do something here. I'm gonna be a servant. I'm gonna look out for the needs of others. What's so great about Jesus is he wasn't just a leader. Jesus, listen, if you're listening, say amen here. Jesus wasn't just a leader. He was a servant leader, which is the greatest kind of leader there is. A servant leader. And then after he washed their feet, he said, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, do you think Jesus was saying to local churches, you ought to have a special service where everybody comes up on the front row, takes their shoes off and the elders wash their feet? Well, no, he's not. I'm not criticizing churches that do that. It's not what Jesus is talking about at all. What is he talking about? He's saying, if I, your Lord and teacher, served you, you should serve one another. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And so please, take, just take some spiritual inventory today. Again, we don't see the pride in our own lives. And so just ask yourself right now, do I desire to be recognized? Do I desire to? right to be applauded do i desire to be served by others do i desire to be esteemed whatever it is if if it's true in your life listen today's the first day for the rest of your life that can be part of your past and now from now on instead of wanting a title just pick up a towel every day and determine to serve people listen if you really want to get practical think this through it's a mindset So the next time you're with your family, what are you asking yourself internally? How can I be a servant? The next time you're with that friend, what are you asking yourself internally? How can I be a servant? The next time you're at church, in a fellowship, what should you be asking yourself? How can I be a servant? It's so important, we come in, we receive the teaching of the Word of God, but it shouldn't stop there. We can't just be consumers, we gotta be contributors. What does that mean? That means that you should serve in the church and you should give to the church. You say, say what? I shouldn't just come in and, and sit down and listen and go home? No, that's not Christianity, that's churchianity. And we're not about churchianity, we're about being followers of Jesus. And Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So yes, we should all be tithing. And yes, we should be giving to people above our tithe. And yes, we should be serving our family and our friends and our church family. That means go out in the parking lot and serve. You say it's really hot out there. Listen, if you'll go out in the parking lot and serve, I guarantee you, great will your reward be in heaven? <laughs> or greet people at the door, or serve in the next steps area, or the cafe, or the children's ministry, or the student ministry, or the safety team, or the security team, or the worship team, or the tech team, or a thousand other teams, right? But, but do something, be, contribute some way. How many of you guys had chores growing up as kids? Yeah, so you did that with your family, this is the church family, why is this any different? And so we have to not just receive, we have to give. And if you say, well, how? I have no idea how to serve at this church. Just go to our website, go to Next Steps, and go to I Want to Serve, and you'll see it's all right there. Now, what we're gonna do for the rest of our service um, is we're gonna look at one of those classic, classic passages in the New Testament. Which, by the way, we could meditate on this passage, verses five through 11, which in the first century was a hymn, by the way. We could uh, focus on this and meditate on this for weeks, and still not plumb the depths of what is here. And so I'm just gonna take um, the next 10 minutes or so and go through this with you, but I really want you to really listen in, because, ladies and gentlemen, A lot of what we're gonna talk about right now is what separates true Christianity from the cults. Okay, so everybody look at me for a second. Um, If you believe in the Jesus of the cults, you believe in the wrong Jesus who cannot save you. Serious stuff. But if you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, that's the Jesus who can save you. And so listen to verse uh, five, look at verse five have this mind among yourselves, it's a mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. All right, so in this passage, you're gonna find out that Paul highlights Christ in three ways. That leads you to your next point, and that is the first way that Paul highlights Christ is as the pre-incarnate Son of God. We're talking about before Bethlehem. Now, it's so important that we don't check our mind at the door when we come into church. So I am gonna go deeper than we usually go, but how many of you guys know that that God does not bypass our minds to get to our heart? We got to actually know what the Bible teaches, and don't Google your theology because you're gonna be off in liberal la la land believing in a Jesus that can't save you. And so as we consider this on a deep level, uh, in verse five it says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and then verse six says, who though he was in the form of God. All right, so that word form means essential form or essential nature. Jesus was in the form of God. That means that Jesus had the essential nature of God. And so when you think about Jesus before Bethlehem, you should be thinking about the second person of the Trinity. And so as we consider the Trinity, ladies and gentlemen, here's what we know, that through the progressive revelation of the New Testament, we discover a wonderful truth that the true God, the one and only God, is three in one. One God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we consider this this, 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 this amazing doctrine of the Trinity, Uh, We know from the scriptures that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are co-eternal and they're co-equal. The three persons of the Trinity, co-eternal and co-equal. What does that mean about the Son? What that means about Christ is that he did not begin to exist when the Virgin Mary got pregnant by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, has, exi- has existed from all eternity, and he's co-equal with the Father, and he's coequal with the Holy Spirit. It's the first verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning, all right, beginning of what? The beginning of the space-time material universe. At one point, there was no space, there was no time, there was no uh, matter, and God, who's a spirit, ex nihilo, Spoke creation to existence, that's the beginning. So in the beginning was the Word. You see how he already existed, the Logos, Christ? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, you guys tell me, God. The Word was God. And so Christ was God, equal to the Father, and yet Paul said he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. I love what John MacArthur said about this passage. He said, though Christ had all the rights and privileges and honors of deity, because he's God, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, his attitude was not to cling to those things, cling to those divine privileges or his position, but to be willing to give them up for a season. What does that mean? That means that Christ, the eternal Christ, was willing to become a man, and as a man, he was willing to become a submissive servant to his father, and that leads you to your next point, and that is the second way that Paul describes or highlights Christ is as as the incarnate Son of God. And so that is in verse seven. Please look at verse seven. And so he's in the form of God. He doesn't count equality with God, a thing to be held on to, but he empties himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now you need to know that the word form in verse Seven is the same Greek word as the word form in verse six. So in verse six, form means essential form, essential nature. So Christ has the essential nature of God. That's verse six. But now in verse seven, form of a servant. What does that mean? That means that Christ has the essential nature of a man. Verse six, he's fully God. Verse seven, he's fully man. And so what we're talking about here is the incarnation, which we celebrate every, every Christmas. The word incarnation has to do with the eternal God clothing himself with human flesh. Again, listen to the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, you guys tell me, God. Go down to verse 14, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And so we see this beautiful incarnation, and he, Paul says in verse seven that at the incarnation, Christ emptied himself. The, word, the verb emptied there is kanao, from where we get the doctrine of the kenosis. Now, that might be an unfamiliar term to you, but it's so, so, so important that you learn this. And so, with a little help from our friends, Dr. Charles Ryrie, the kenosis, the emptying of Christ, during his incarnation does not mean that he surrendered any attributes of deity. I gotta stop right there, right? Because that is so important. Christ never stopped being God. You guys see that? So important you get that. Because if you Google your theology, you're gonna find out that the Christ of the cults was not God and that is not a Jesus who can save you. So Christ, when he emptied himself during his incarnation, doesn't mean he surrendered any attributes of deity, but that he took on the limitations of humanity. And this involved the veiling of his pre-incarnate glory and the voluntary non-use of some of his divine prerogatives during the time that he was on the earth. And so Dr. Ryrie, um, halfway down, references John 17, 5. And so in that verse Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says to the Father, "Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created." And so yes, before Bethlehem, Jesus Christ existed from all eternity and he was glorified with the Father and he was glorified with the Holy Spirit. But then in the eternal councils of the Trinity, because you and I are lost in our sins and we need a savior, Christ says, I'll go. And what happened is that he left his throne in heaven and he entered time and space to the womb of a virgin. And what did he do? He added He did not exchange, please. He did never exchange his deity for his humanity, no. He added a human nature to his already eternally existing divine nature. And Jesus Christ emptied himself of the divine privileges that he formerly had in heaven. You say, what do you mean he emptied himself of his divine privileges or prerogatives? Well, that's illustrated in the last verse. Matthew 24, 36. Jesus is talking about the second coming. And he says, and I quote, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so Jesus says, I don't know when I'm coming back. Now isn't that amazing? How do you explain that? It's it's not that hard to figure out. Jesus Christ was one person and he had two natures. He had a divine nature and he had a human nature. In his divine nature, of course, he knew when he was gonna come back. God is omniscient, he knows all things. But when he became a man through the kenosis, what did he do? He engaged in the voluntary non-use of some of his divine prerogatives, and so in his human nature, he did not know when he would return. Now as a man, verse eight, Jesus did something shocking. Please look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Everybody look at me for a second. Jesus Christ, our hero, the Son of God, goes from the highest height anybody could ever go to, reigning over the universe as the second person of the Trinity, right? From the highest height, he goes now to the lowest low, coming down to this sin-cursed world and becoming a curse, he hangs half naked on a cross. He takes your sin and my sin into his body on the tree and he bleeds. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is, and so Jesus Christ said, instead of you and 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 and me dying and going to hell, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna die on the cross in their place, absorb the wrath of God, bleed so that they can be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Jesus Christ, greatest story ever told, greatest hero who ever existed, And he proved that it was all true because on the third day he got up and he walked out of that grave, victorious over sin, death, and hell, and he ascended back into the right hand of the Father. That leads you to your last point this afternoon. And that is that the third way that the Apostle Paul highlights Christ is as the exalted Son of God. And so look at the hymn. Verses nine through 11, Um, I won't sing it because I know everybody will leave. All right, so look at verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Absolutely amazing. You have the pre-incarnate Christ eternally existing before the creation of the universe as the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit, receiving glory as God, and he makes a choice because he loves you so much. Because without him, we die and go to hell. And he says, no, I want them to be forgiven. And what does he do? He becomes incarnate. He adds a human nature to his already eternally existing divine nature, lives the life that you and I could not live. It's a perfect life. And goes to the cross and dies the death we should have died. He absorbs God's wrath for our sins. He dies. He rises from the grave. He ascends now, exalted Christ, to the right hand of the Father. And one day, whether people like it or not, every knee will bow. and Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Christ made a choice to become a servant. We can make that choice too. It's a mindset, but it all starts with bowing our knee and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is he your Lord? Is he your God?